Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. Hello, and you are very welcome to this week's episode of Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. I'm your host, Ashling O'Rourke, and I hope you are safe and well as you tune in to the show this week, whether you're listening to us on FM or indeed on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts. Um, as I said last week, I just got my hands on the figures for the podcast there recently and uh, quite impressive, if I do say so myself. So thank you so much for listening, regardless of how you are listening. And don't forget, each and every week, I want to hear from you. So if there is something you want me to talk about on Let's Go Green, please do get in contact with me directly. Go on to midlands103.com, click on the On Air Team button. You'll see a picture of my face and uh, click on Ashling O'Rourke and you'll be able to send me an email directly. And uh, it's uh, always nice to get listeners on the airwaves and help you share your story. But it's Monday. We are now less than 24 hours away from budget day. And I think... I might be wrong on this, but it certainly feels like this year we've been talking about the upcoming budget. Um, just uh, we've been talking more, but we've been talking about it. It feels like for months now at this stage. And, you know, I am curious, let's just say, regardless of what we leaks, we may or may not have heard. But I'm curious to see what kind of measures will be included in the budget in terms of tackling climate change. And we really shouldn't forget the amount of money that climate change is actually costing us as a country. So to discuss the financial side of these issues, I'm joined now by Dr. Eddie Casey. And Eddie is the Chief Economist with the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council. Eddie, you are very welcome to Let's Go Green. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So Eddie, in a nutshell, can we quantify how much climate change is costing us as a nation. So this is exactly what we're trying to do in our new report um, that we've just published. And the answer is it's incredibly tricky, right? Mm. So uh, one of the reasons you're not seeing a lot of countries doing this work and tackling it very well is that it just requires such a diverse um, range of skills and um, experts to, to really get together do the work that's required and try and pool their expertise to, to get the answers that are needed. Um, and if you take what we did, we basically relied very heavily on MARE, which is a research center in University College Cork, and they do excellent work on modeling what the optimal path or the, the kind of least cost path to us achieving our targets might be. And so when we used their simulations, we were able to get a sense of what the kind of total economy costs might be, you know, how much you, me, everyone's going to have to invest to, to achieve these targets. And then we could start to really think through, well, how much is it likely to co- cost the government, which is really where our focus is. You know, we're an independent watchdog. We look at the public finances and what the big implications are in terms of government uh, decisions there, and what it means for everyone. And we act completely independently and, you know, we're not alien to conflict with government now and then, even though we're funded uh, by government ultimately. So what we did was we took those scenarios that Mary had put together and we looked at various assumptions for what would happen revenue, uh, government's tax receipts and, and expenditure. And we can see 
that the, the big cost really, uh, first of all, they are threefold, right? So the very first thing that you look at is the tax receipts and what will happen there. And of course, the Irish tax system, like loads of tax systems internationally, um, is linked very intrinsically to uh, emissions. So if you think of when you drive your car, petrol, diesel um, consumption, uh, when you buy your car, the vehicle registration tax you pay um, and your annual motor tax uh, rates, all of these things are tied to emissions. So as we see uh, a reduction in fossil fuel use um, and less people moving to buy these cars, you're going to see a big fall off in those revenues unless they adapt. And so what we did was we took a, just on the revenue side, just what if policy doesn't change? What if we kept policy constant from today out to 2050? Um, we looked at the simulations for what happens to the car fleet because everyone moves to our electric vehicles gradually in order to hit our targets on the climate front. Um, and you can see basically all of these revenues just burn up. The, we, the impact there would be, we think, about two and a half billion lost every year uh, in t- tax receipts by 2030, but then rising even further again to about four and a half billion losses. And most of it's coming through on, on the fuel side and the motor tax side, but then you see more on um, even just switching from, uh, say, new standard uh, of fuels to uh, uh, pure electricity and then different VAT rates on the two. Um, and so that's that's the revenue side. So that's a lot of money. Um, and, and then added on top of that is the expenditure side. And here things get even trickier again because really we don't know what the government plans to do on the expenditure side. And we could uh, introduce any range of potential measures. And what we had to do was take a lot of judgments as to, well, how are they going to achieve the, the reductions required? And so we looked at things like retrofitting, um, scrappage scheme for cars to push people to actually make the transition, um, and also things like supports for the farming sector and supports for uh, industry. Because unless you ha- see those supports, it's very likely that people just won't make the move. You know, yeah. it's not, not financially viable. Um, they, they're cash constraints. They only have so much cash in the bank to do this. And these things are expensive. So why would they do it unless there was some uh, form of characteristic, let's say, right? So, well, like, what? if you if you liken it to, and I, I've said this several times in the show, and maybe it, it's a, a pet peeve of mine, but, and I wasn't around when rural electrification happened or when the telephone lines were installed, but I still have to pay my line rental. And like, like you say there, like these changes that we do have to make in our own homes, they're going to cost people thousands of euro, particularly in a house that's older than what, the year 2000. Um, Like I know my own family home, I think, was built in the 60s. I dread to think how much that would cost. But that it's not going to happen because the budget simply isn't there. Whereas like back in the day, I don't think anybody in the 50s or 60s would have had the money to pay for the installation of phone lines and electric uh, and electricity. But it was spread out over a very long period of time. Like, why aren't we seeing ideas like this come to the table? Yeah, so this is our concern as well, that the costs are especially really, really large. Um, and we want to see answers in terms of like where where are the measures going to come? How are they going to be supported? And what is the plan? That's the real question here. Like, we just don't see a plan. And like I've been saying, on the radio elsewhere and, and you know, kind of in, in, to everyone that'll listen, what we need to do is just plan. 
And and that is really the starting point for tackling this. So, and the reason I think that's so important to say is that we really don't have a plan right now. We don't mm-hmm. have clear sense beyond 2026 what the government is actually planning to do. And um, there's drips and drabs, different policies here and there across uh, departments and things like that. But you don't get a whole sense of what the policy is, uh, you know, in terms of, are we going to retrofit every single one of these houses? Are we going to uh, give subsidies for cars on a continuous basis? Are we going to do a scrap screen? How is this going to be incentivized? And that's what we need to start seeing because it's getting quite urgent. Um, we're we're sure that we're going to be missing our targets. There's going to be costs to that and we're still going to have to make the adjustment anyway. So, you know, if you take the expenditure side, add to the two and a half billion lost in tax receipts by 2030, the expenditure could be anywhere between one and a half to three billion every year by 2030. And these are repeated costs because there's just so many houses to get through. Like the one you mentioned there, there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of houses need to be retrofitted. Um, we have to re um, stock the entire car fleet almost. So the costs are going to be really, really large to do this. Um, now, there's going to be benefits. Let's not, you know, get too hung up on the costs. You know, we will see, like when Ireland was electrified, you know, there are benefits to this. We have ener- greater energy security, we have less pollution, we have better health outcomes, there's jobs that will come with the work. You know, so we we shouldn't get too hung up on the cost of it, but, but I the reason we get hung up on that is because this is really our job. We want to see what the, the numbers look like and how we're going to keep everything sustainable on the public finances front, that we're, we have some kind of view of how the government is going to achieve it and whether or not it's actually sensible and, and it won't lead to everyone having to, say, cut back on healthcare spending or to suddenly hike taxes very suddenly because we found it was unaffordable. And that that's really where our uh, ultimate concerns lie. So if you take the two together, yeah. the two and a half billion last tax receipts, the one and a half to three billion spending, that's leading up to about five billion, uh, five and a half, six billion um, of permanent uh, annual measures, you could say, for at least as far as we can see into the future over the next couple of decades. Right? As in every year, we're going to need to spend about five billion. We, we would need to spend about one and a half to three billion and we would need to find a replacement for the two and a half billion taxes. Okay. And rising. Now, that size of, of uh, an outlay, that, that kind of, I suppose, overall amount of money is almost exactly in line with what we're seeing policymakers haggle over in terms of this budget. You know, so we're going into the budget and all of this discussions, you, you said, you know, the budget starting earlier and earlier. We used to think Christmas starts in August, mm. uh, and we, we see it in December. I think the budget <laughs> starts in April, and if we don't see it until October, it is getting earlier, and we see lots of um, pressures going into it. You know, the cost of living uh, pressures that people are facing, uh, housing, the demands for that, the health system, and the overruns that we're seeing there, and the demands purely from a much older population, um, and, and prices rising there as well. So all of these things are the day-to-day pressures, but but we somehow have to find the same quantum, the same amount of money in some sense, just to deal with the climate challenge. And that's that's really what we need to get to grips with, right? Look, we know that the amounts are potentially very large. Now, what are we going to do to uh, achieve them? And there's various ways you can do it, but we want to start seeing these plans. So on the revenue side, you might just say, let's move to congestion charges. Let's move to road distance travel. 
garages, you know, see tax on that basis. That might be one option. We're not saying that's right or wrong. But the, like, these are the questions. Positive. But you're saying we need to look at what the options are. We need to at least examine them, which we're not doing. We're avoiding the issue. Um, and like, I just, there is, there is this assumption that, oh, sorry, we're, we're like, we're hearing so much about well, we can't do this because we need to put money into the rainy day fund and we, we need to be responsible with our finances. We don't want to go back to t- 2008. Are we not facing the rainy day? Is this not what money was put away for after the crash because for emergencies, is this not an emergency? So well, one of the reasons the rainy day fund was now called the reserve fund is that in Ireland, nearly every day it rained. Um, and that's kind of, you know, the irony of it. Mm-hmm. Not just that and not to be facetious, but, you know, more than just the weather, it's, there's always some pressure, some immediate pressure. Um, and if we only get focused on that, and if we, you know, to use the analogy that, that I sometimes use, if, we, if we're only looking into the water is immediately around us and, get, and pre- getting preoccupied with the, the, the little issues that we see here and there, and I'm not saying they're little to really demean them, but in the context of everything that we're looking forward to, that we're going to miss the iceberg that's looming in the distance. And we really are just slowly getting closer and closer to that. And um, Stephen Kinsella was writing about this last week, and he said that the climate doesn't really care, you know, uh, about whether or not we do the measures or not, you know, in terms of, you know, we're going to make an impact, obviously. I don't mean it's not going to care at all, but it, it's still there in the background. And similar to that, we have these aging pressures. So... An interesting parallel with the world climate debate is that we we also have a country that's growing older. You know, in 30 years' time, we'll look a lot like Italy and Greece, which are, you know, considerably older countries in the sense of the proportion of individuals that are older relative to younger people. And we'll look much more like those countries in 30 years' time because of the nature of uh, Ireland's uh, age structure. And so feeling like a young country now, they'll be moving into a very old country uh, quite soon. And these all carry costs. So this is the iceberg that's ahead of us that we need to start thinking about very clearly rather than getting hung up on, yes, of course, there's loads of pressures today. Yes, of course, they have merit and we need to tackle all sorts of things. And this, there's never a limit to how much good we can do, you yeah. know, in terms of providing public services and helping people. But we have to have an eye on what the big challenges are. And these are the major ones, aging, climate. Um, if we don't tackle them and if we don't plan for them, they're going to hit us much harder than they otherwise would. And that's pretty clear from the work we do in terms of simulations about the potential costs over the long run. When you when you deal with these things up front, they tend to have a lot smaller costs and the pain of adjusting for them is a lot less. And, and what do I mean by that? It means you don't have to hike taxes as much if you do it slowly and incrementally. Now, planning ahead, you don't have to cut back on spending as much as you otherwise would. Um, and these are very real uh, results that you see from the modeling. You can see, you know, if we were to increase taxes now to deal with uh, the rise in pension spending, for example, the, the, the cost would be about 40% less than if we waited another 20, 30 years to deal with it. So it's it might be kind of undesirable to do it today. And there's mm-hmm. not, a lot of, not a lot of love for it, I'm sure, among any politician. Um, but the reality is at some point we're going to have to deal with this. It's a bit like 
those poor children and um, that we've been listening to in the news about them and their scoliosis surgeries and waiting and waiting and waiting and then all of a sudden they finally get their surgery but then they need maybe 10 more surgeries to fix the problems that occurred while waiting for the first surgery you know um and I think like people get that and, and I think now I think we do understand that that something needs to be done but we're perhaps so much under financial pressure in our own homes in our own families that the idea that tomorrow that the, the minister is going to say the carbon tax is going up or, you know, the cost of living in general, your day to day bills are going to go up. It's very difficult for people to accept that they need to be the ones to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that's that's clear. We can see that in every country in the world. No one likes uh, seeing an increase in costs on, on their, you know, their weekly spend. No one's but like Eddie, more taxes. With respect, it's not about liking seeing more costs. Like, we don't have it in our bank accounts to pay it. Yeah, I, I, I have no doubt there's a load of people under pressure yeah. in terms of their own financial situation. I, I don't dispute that. Um, and I, I think, you know, where we come from on this is really that we, we're, we're the kind of technocrats, right? We're, we're the people that just look at the hard numbers and try and make the economic calls for what is the sensible thing to do. We're not the policy makers. We're not the people that have to send up at the end of the day, announce the budget package and tell people who the winner and lo- winners and losers are, you know? Um, we, all we can do is give our assessment of what the path is ahead for the public finances and how the economy is going to look. Um, uh, as best as we can. But really, the questions about who gets um, more support, uh, who gets less, uh, where spending goes, these are all things that are decided by the democratic choices we face every day. And so when a politician calls to your doorstep and you say these things are important to you, that's really the way we interact. When you go to the voting booth, that's how you interact. It's not through us. You know, we, we, we're there as an independent watchdog to say, uh, this is a cold assessment of what you should do to run the economy soundly over the long term, recognizing all these pressures. We're not the ones that are going to say, you know, your neighbor should get us or you should get us. Uh, that, that's really not our job. I'm not going to say if, because you do have the ear of Michael McGrath and Pascal Donahue and Eamon Ryan. So if you were talking to them this evening and like, what would you, in a nutshell, because uh, I know we're, we're under a time pressure, but in a nutshell, to at least begin tackling the climate change crisis, what what does the government need to do and do, and, and in an ideal scenario, announce in tomorrow's budget? So, <laughs> to start with the premise of your question, I don't think we have the ear of them necessarily. Uh, you know, we are, like, we're totally and fiercely independent. We really operate at arm's length. Well, I suppose my point is that they will, um, be, yeah. unlike others, you get, you, you, you will, we, we, those of us in the media give you guys the airtime and then as a result, they're forced to listen. Okay, so that's how we have our impact. <laughs> we, we're not really, you know, we're called the advisory council. We don't, we're not advisors. We basically assess independently um, what they're doing. But what, what would we say? I, I, I think we would just say, Look, can we see a set of long-term realistic plans for how we would propose doing this? Um, that would be the starting point. 
then we can start to get our teeth into it in terms of is it you know is it realistic where the the um where the dark areas that we don't really understand you know is there not enough detail on um but if you actually set out a long-term plan beyond 2026 and and this is probably one of the areas that i suppose uh the, the work really highlighted for us was that you start to see this transition happening in military seven and really wrapping up quite quickly that's when the models suggest that people will have to start switching their cars en masse, large numbers. They will have to start retrofitting our homes really rapidly to hit these targets. Uh, if we don't hit them, we're going to hit all these non-compliance costs year in, year out as well. And we're still going to have to do it later on. So, so what we want to see is let's start talking about 2027 onwards. Let's start looking at the numbers and seeing where the money is going to go bit by bit then. And then we can really just start to have that discussion. Is it realistic? Who's going to benefit? Are the measures um, actually achievable? Well, Dr. Eddie Casey, the Chief Economist at the Fiscal Advisory Council, the, the independent financial watchdog of the government. Thank you very much for joining us here on Let's Go Green. We will, um, I know I'll be keeping a close eye on Budget 24 when it is announced tomorrow and uh, Perhaps, Eddie, you might come back to us at some point and give us your, your take on what the government does in hands. I'd love it. Thanks, thanks, thanks very much for your time. I'll be back after the break. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. And as we await budget 2024 and we will investigate what exactly is in it um, from a climate perspective. But I did think that uh, Dr. Eddie Casey there gave us a good oversight as to what could be done from a financial perspective, because at the end of the day, the changes that we're going to need to make in terms of tackling climate change, well, they can't happen for free, unfortunately, because, you know, that would be a bit too easy, wouldn't it? But over the weekend, uh, President Michael D. Higgins was in Porto in Portugal, a beautiful city that I've, um, I was lucky enough to, to visit a couple of years back and, and spend some time there. Um, it was, it's a fabulous um, a city altogether, but he was there to attend the annual meeting of EU presidents known as the Arlois Group. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but there it is. And it's um, a selection of 14 non-executive heads of state. It takes place in the city of Porto. And the discussions there did centre on both the climate crisis and, of course, the war in Ukraine. President Higgins, his main mission for being there, though, was a focus on the climate crisis and food security. And he was urging members of that group to really up their game in terms of tackling climate change. He spoke there to media and said that what we're dealing with is a set of interlocking crises that are connected. He calls for climate action at the meeting there at an unprecedented level. He says that the strongest statements in recent times on climate change were, of course, made by Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, which we, we did play here on Let's Go Green. But he says it's, you know, he's criticised basically the, the main countries, the lead countries in, in particular, who have made massive commitments 
that they have not fulfilled. And the failure of climate change is affecting migration, which, of course, is a massive issue. And we're seeing that here in Ireland, but I don't think we're really recognising it as a climate change perspective. But there are so many people migrating to Ireland um, as a result of climate change. We already have a housing crisis. Then we have the refugee situation from Ukraine. Like, Climate change is not happening in isolation. So it's interesting to see him bring it up. And now, according to uh, President Higgins, we have new levels of global migration and the choice morally, whether we seek to erect barriers to keep people out or whether they'll try to understand the sources in global poverty. He's warned of a real danger in a kind of politics where fear will inform these issues when in fact what we need to do is act and mitigate against what we know is coming down the tracks and we are all um, all seeing that and you know he's recognised the Ireland's commitment to um, conflict resolution and we do have you know a, a good history there in terms of humanitarian assistance but we need to really now focus our efforts on the environment and do what we can there. So interesting comments from President Michael D. Higgins there. And um, I wonder, will what he said on Friday have any influence um, in relation to the budget? Will, will it focus minds? As we know, the um, the budget is um, around about now on Monday nights before budget day, probably shortly heading off to the printers um, for any those last minute changes. But we will wait and see what is announced and come back to it in next week's Let's Go Green. Coming up after the break, we're going to be talking to Catherine Casey of the Heritage Council about her new role there as Head of Climate Change. Stay tuned. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103 and I hope you are enjoying the show so far this week. Well, we're joined by Catherine Casey. Now, Catherine Casey is formerly of Leach County Council, but she's now gone to national level with the Heritage Council and is head of climate change for the Heritage Council. Catherine, you're very welcome to Let's Go Green. Thanks a million, Ashley. Now, Catherine, you spoke to us back in September, which feels like a lifetime ago now, um, about Hedgerow Week. But we thought we'd have a chat about the Heritage Council and your role in doing a bit towards tackling um, climate change. But what is the Heritage Council? Because I know we go to different heritage sites, maybe if we're on a day off work and we go to see these places or we might be maybe for buying property aware that we might have listed buildings to deal with. But we don't really, I think, have an understanding of the role of the Heritage Council. Yeah, sure. And it's great to have an opportunity to talk about what the Heritage Council does. So we're a public service body. We're associated with the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage. And our role is implementing the Heritage Act 1995. So that was an act that came in to protect all of Ireland's heritage. And it lists out the built natural and cultural heritage that we all are responsible for. So the Heritage Council's role is in promoting um, awareness of that, protecting it and providing advice to the Minister. The Minister for Heritage at the moment, of course, is Malcolm Noonan. So we provide advice through policy statements 
and support through ministers. But I think possibly most people might be familiar with us through Heritage Week, which is yes. kind of our key event. We organise the Heritage Week throughout the country in association with, associated with a lot of partners um, in August every year. And it's a very high profile event. It's a lot of, a lot of local community events are run and they're run by, by public agencies and larger bodies as well to promote awareness of all of our heritage. Um, other people might have come across the heritage officers in local authorities. Mm-hmm. So we've got heritage officers in Leash, Offaly and Westmeath local authorities as across the whole country actually um, working to promote awareness of heritage, collect data, promote pride, uh, carry out practical conservation projects um, throughout those. So th- those would be suppose like our key events, our key projects, Heritage Week, the heritage officers. We also have um, uh, people who pr- promote um, built heritage. So we have the, the Irish Wall Towns Network, which looks after the wall towns of Ireland, conserving the walls of the old the old walled towns, um, promoting awareness of them, and other, other projects th- that go on throughout the year as well. And I know, like, um, in Offaly, I know Amanda Pedlow would be behind the publication or the assistance in publication of books about particular areas of heritage and would be a great support in that area. So it is very, it's vast, really, you know, in, in what these roles could be. There's, there's so much that you you guys could get involved in and it might be a bit overwhelming dare I suggest at times as to the role I suppose you could think of it that way but also you could think that it's it's, it's wonderful to have an opportunity to help so many people the other big thing that we do uh, uh, that many people will be aware of is we have a range of different grant schemes so that helps us to I suppose implement our strategy through the work of communities right the way throughout the country whether that's heritage walking trails or small conservation projects biodiversity surveys we would support those through our community heritage grants and we also have grants now for local non-governmental organisations to support the core work and the, the crucial work that they do to protecting Ireland's heritage. So I suppose it's a way that I suppose magnifies our reach in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. which is great. So then talk to me about your role, because your role is essentially brand new for the Heritage Council. That's right. Yeah, it's a, the head of climate change is a new post in the Heritage Council. We're lucky that we've had a couple of new roles added in recent years. And I suppose climate change is a, is a topical, a key interest um, for many organisations and it's a new it's a new post in the in the Heritage Council. What attracted you to the role? Well, I was a heritage officer, as you mentioned, for um, local authority for many years. So I was very familiar with the work of the Heritage Council. Um, I was also very familiar with the importance of climate and the impact of climate on heritage. And like a lot of people, I was becoming increasingly concerned about climate. Um, so I was doing some upskilling, doing some courses, and then the job came up. So it seemed perfect for me. It combines climate and heritage, my two passions. Um, so I was absolutely thrilled to be offered the post. I'm there since uh, last December now. So then... What's the role? Because if you're, I suppose, protecting the heritage that has been built up over, well, thousands of years and climate change is a current issue and an, an impending issue, how how does it work? What, what, what might you hope to achieve with your role? Sure. Well, I suppose part of what I'm doing is trying to make sure that as an organisation, the Heritage Council is fulfilling all of its responsibilities. So like all public service bodies, cutting our own emissions, looking after our own house, you might say. And then I suppose setting, sending the message of climate and sustainability through all of our partners, whether that be the Heritage Officers, Biodiversity Officers, through our local community grants that we ensure that any projects that we support or are involved with don't do any harm to climate and biodiversity. And I'm saying those two together on on Mm. purpose because I think they're very closely related. Um, And I think we need to look at climate change and biodiversity loss as two sides of the same coin, really. But um, that aside, that's kind of, I suppose, our influence on our own work and then our influence as advocates. But a very, very important part of what I'm doing is looking at the impact of climate change on our heritage. So whether that's our listed buildings that that are getting 
battered by heavier rainfall, maybe more storms, our archaeological monuments that might be getting washed away or falling into the sea um, and our biodiversity, which is being affected in many ways by our changing climate. Um, But also down to smaller, maybe less obvious things like new pests that might come into the country as a result of our warmer summers could be attacking our archives or our museums. And how do we help local museums and archives deal with those kinds of things? So there's a lot of aspects of climate change that maybe aren't so obvious, but definitely are affecting our heritage. And we need to be very, very conscious of it and make plans for it. And it is about, I suppose, us preparing ourselves for it and being ready ready to act then when when these issues um, happen. Is it a challenge, though, particularly with older, like, listed buildings when, like, the Heritage Council wouldn't own these properties but has a role in assisting in their maintenance, you know, or advising on how to protect them. Are there an awful lot of stakeholders that you you would have to work with on it? For sure. And as you mentioned, I mean, a lot of the times the the, the key stakeholders are private owners. Mm. And our role in that situation is supporting those private owners, helping with the research, gathering the data, collating all of the research that's there. I'm working with our colleagues, obviously, in the department as well to promote, to provide training and advice uh, written training and documents uh, training courses um, for people who might be managing those buildings. One of the big projects that we're working on at the moment, some of my colleagues in the Heritage Council have des- designed a, a course for energy retrofits for traditional buildings. So some of our traditional buildings built with stone, maybe mud, thatch, they behave very differently to concrete built buildings. They need water to move through them, not be waterproof, not be airtight. Being airtight is actually bad for them and can cause damage. So your traditional retrofit or your typical retrofit involves making a building airtight Mm. and preventing um, um, the heat being lost that way. That's not good for traditional buildings. So one of the things the Heritage Council is doing is upskilling contractors and um, helping consultants to to upskill themselves in in planning that kind of energy upgrade but for our traditional buildings. And that by traditional I don't necessarily mean the big houses or the small thatched houses. Basically anything built before about 1940 will be built using different materials than the ones we use today. So it needs a different approach. And I think like I know many people nowadays are looking at properties like that because of maybe the the government grants that they can get for for derelict buildings and then run into difficulty finding a contractor who is willing to take it on because they're so used to dealing with modern buildings. So to have training available for contractors, like is that proving popular? Are, Are contractors able to make the time even to do these courses? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, new resources needed and I suppose that people are seeing it as a gap in the market so people are seeing that it's an area that they'd like to move into so we need more contractors in, mm. in general in the country as we all know there's a, it's a limiting factor so skilled contractors who are prepared to work in these buildings prepared to work with mortar lime mortar with stone with thatch with even mud wall buildings um, it's a very specialist skill and does require specialist training so we're working with the Technological University of the Shannon um, and that they're providing specialist courses for contractors in those in those areas. It's proving very popular and there's lots of interest in the courses. It's early days yet. Okay, fantastic. Um, and then, like, there would be, I think it's fair to say, some criticism about um, a la- a neglect of historical buildings over the years in Ireland. And, like, that, do you know, we, we, we kind of, our countries run from election cycle to election cycle, mm-hmm. you know, um, and we kind of, you know, regular people, we, we maybe drive past buildings on a daily basis and think, oh God, it's terrible, that's been left to fall derelict. Does the, does the council have a role there in, in 
kind of insisting that buildings are maintained or, or is it up to the likes of perhaps government departments and the OPW and, and private landowners then? No, while we do have a role in the planning process, so we would be a statutory consultee in the planning process, no, the, the maintenance and, ma- and repair of, say, listed buildings falls to the local authorities um, and support for those. I mean, there, there is increasing support in, in terms of grant, conservation grants through the local authorities for those kinds of buildings. Um, but yeah, you're right, there's a long way to go. A lot has been done, as they say. Yeah. It's, it's the typical one. Um, more to do, for sure. That was a famous election yeah. campaign <laughs> not too long ago, wasn't it, Catherine? Um, but I know, like, because I think people, like, we're in a housing crisis and it is difficult to then even just drive down Tullamore or any main street in the Midlands and you'll see in town centres empty derelict buildings that wouldn't necessarily come under the Heritage Council because they're not necessarily um, of particular importance but it's hard to stomach when you hear all these numbers on, on housing waiting lists. So like, do we collectively need to get better at taking responsibility for all these older buildings. Yeah, I agree with you. I think we do. I mean, it's definitely positive. We've got these new town regeneration teams now in all the local authorities and that is their role. But local local areas, um, it's hard to know for sure always who owns these buildings. Private owners have obviously rights and responsibilities in that situation. So the local authority needs to work together with those private landowners. Sometimes it can appear that that progress is very slow, but uh, there's often a lot of work going on behind the scenes to address those. And the Heritage Council is involved um, through our, 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 our conservation officer um, and our planning officer in terms of providing overall policy for town regeneration and heritage led regeneration has been an important part of what we've been doing in recent years. The Historic Towns Initiative, um, the town of Burr has, has benefited from it, the town of Portleash, a lot of the works that was done in the centre of the, the, the old Fort Protector and the, the town of Portleash, they can be kind of a kickstarter to, mm-hmm. to, to further regeneration. You know, if a derelict part of, of a, a historic property property is, is regenerated, such as the Fort Protector. Um, and when I was in Leach County Council, we did a lot of work on Fitzmaurice Place, the old convent there, if people know it. What you can see then is that the heritage, investing in the heritage of the centre of town can actually have a trickle-down effect over the whole of a, t- a historic town centre. So the Historic Towns Initiative is one of the, the Heritage Council's initiatives. That, that's, that's the aim of it, I suppose, is to support the local authorities in that work. And when we see these projects, then we get to see the, the work of the Heritage Council in action, because I suppose it can feel a bit intangible for, for, for those of us who are not involved at the core of these things. It can be hard to see what it is that the Heritage Council does. So it's it's yeah. lovely to see these projects happening. Yeah, when you talk about policy and advocacy, it can seem a bit intangible for sure. But it's great when you see, as you say, either grant supported projects happening on the ground or projects that are happening as a result of policies that we've um, promoted, put in place. And the real teller is, is the action on the ground for sure. Now, when we spoke last, we were speaking about Hedgerow Week and, and biodiversity and you mentioned earlier on there that biodiversity and climate change, you know, we have to think of these things hand in hand. We now have biodiversity officers in our local authorities. How important a step is that? It's massively important and that's one of the, the key things that we're rolling out. The Heritage Council, in partnership with the local authorities, is de- has, has worked with the department to devise this new programme of biodiversity officers and we, our aim is to have a biodiversity officer in every local authority by the end of next year. So there's about 15 in place now and there's more coming on. When I say about, it's because there's more coming on stream mm-hmm. all the time. Um, there's one in Offaly, he's been working in Offaly County Council for about six months now. There's one starting in Westmeath County Council next week as it happens and 
leash won't be far behind. So that means that there's a, an officer, a place, a person that some that people who have concerns about biodiversity can contact. There'll be a biodiversity action plan for the county, working together with all the stakeholders, working together with the heritage officers who've been doing great work in the, bi- the biodiversity space for years, you know, um, and need extra resources. So that person will be there to provide advice, but also to gather data. When I said earlier that um, biodiversity is threatened by climate change, biodiversity to a large extent is also the answer to climate change. Mm. Our nature-based solutions, our wetlands, our forests, our bogs, if well managed, can make a huge contribution to both climate mitigation, so that's reducing our carbon impacts, but also adaptation, helping to hold on to floodwaters, helping to slow down um, any damage that's done by excessive storms. So the, the, when I say the two sides of the same coin, they really are biodiversity and a healthy natural area, whether that be healthy cities with lots of greeneries, lots of trees, lots of greenways, or a healthy, healthy countryside with healthy rivers, floodplains left to be as they should be, wetlands, peatlands, all holding on to water. Um, they really can help us in the fight against climate change. And it's about then if we're making changes to our own homes, our houses, to our farms, about taking all of these these factors into consideration and going to the likes of the Heritage Council or even the Department of Agriculture and getting advice before taking action. Absolutely. And you mentioned Hedgerow Week. Chagask have done a lot of work in that space. That's something that lots of people will be concerned about and they can get lots of information from either our own website, which is heritagecouncil.ie, just to get that in, or Chagask. And all from, from the local authorities as well. A big focus of what the biodiversity officers will be doing and as I said, as the heritage officers have been doing, is helping people to take action in their own local area. Whether you're a tidy towns, uh, committee or whether you're a local uh, landowner, whether you're a garden holder um, there's loads that you can do and I suppose I really should mention congratulations to Abilique's Tidy Towns. Absolutely. One of the, the best and most hardworking Tidy Towns um, groups that I've certainly ever come across. So proud of them and it's great to see the great work that they've been doing um, recognised. Uh, they've been getting recognition, recognition for years but the ultimate prize of winning the Ireland's Tidiest Town. Super work that's done by them. They've been hugely positive in terms of looking after their biodiversity, working with schools on sustainability, recycling Recycling, use of rainwater, all the sustainable energy uh, communities, all of that wraps together. There's a lot more to tidy towns than people think. It's not just about pick, picking up litter, by far from it. And even Geishal that were honoured on Friday as being Ireland's tidiest village, um, like they have been so active um, over the years in terms of biodiversity. Like you go you go through, it's drive through Geishal now and you're nearly hit in the face with pollinator plant yes. signs or, <laughs> you know, it's all, it's all there to be seen and it's, you know, and we don't have it's great in the Midlands we don't have to go too far to see examples of excellence in action it, yeah. and, and it, that, that hard work we, we really do have to, have to recognise that well Catherine Casey um, now of the Heritage Council um, thank you so much for your time I'm sure we will have you back on Let's Go Green uh, many more times but uh, best of luck in, in your relatively <laughs> recent new role of Head of Climate Change for the Heritage Council thanks so much Ashley. thanks for having me we'll be back after Let's Go Green Sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. And my thanks to all our contributors to this week's episode of the show. As I said, uh, the most popular podcast on Midlands 103. We are very proud of that uh, new title. So do keep listening. I'm pleased to get in contact with me um, and let me know where you're listening from because apparently we have listeners all over the world. And I'd be only too delighted to give you a shout out on air. And indeed, uh, let us know how you found out about us. You can get in contact 
contact with me directly. If you go on to midlands103.com, click on the on-air team. There's a picture of me there, Ashling O'Rourke. Click on my name, send me an email directly and I will be sure to uh, get back to you. Um, sometimes I'm not as quick to get back to people as I would like. I would hold my hand up on that front, but I do read all um, all the messages that we get in there and I do appreciate each and every one of them. Now we do have to give a big shout out to Abby Leakes who won the tidiest town in Ireland. That is, it's the first time I believe that Abby Leakes has won. They have been participating in the competition for over 50 years. It's a phenomenal achievement. Abby Leakes is a beautiful, picturesque town. If you've never been to Abby Leakes, do go to and, and check it out between the, the, the boglands around it and the walkways and the little tea rooms. It's just one of those really, really lovely towns. And I want to say um, well done to every who participated in that and you know it's hard work you're doing it outside your main jobs you're doing it for the love of it and for the passion and the community and because you care about your community and do you know it's all very well and good for the rest of us to sit at home and give out about things but it takes actual you know effort to go and do something about it so um well done and it's um we're delighted for you as we are delighted for Geishal in County Offaly of family from not too far away my own dad was from not too far away from Geishal so very proud of that um, accolade Geishal of course getting medals all the time in the tidy towns over the years so it's great to see them get that national honour of tidiest village for 2023 we will be sure to check in on those involved in tidy towns to talk to them about the efforts that they're making in terms of biodiversity now I know I joked about it with Catherine but in fairness there's there's a lot of effort going in from the tidy towns communities in in encouraging wildflower meadows to develop and in making sure we're litter free yeah sure but in protecting our biodiversity in our towns and and making the towns look welcoming to visitors and you know encourage us all to spend more time in our towns and villages and of course spend money to keep those communities thriving and you know how the place looks and feels plays a significant factor in on that so we will hopefully over the next week or two speak to some of our winning committee members but for now I'm afraid that's all we have time for on this week's episode of Let's Go Green. I hope you have a great week and uh, stay tuned. As always, as I said, get in contact with me through midlands103.com. You can listen to the podcast on your preferred podcast app. But for now, stay tuned to Midlands 103. I'll be back same time next week with another episode of Let's Go Green. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more.